0: Well, good morning again, everybody. We're continuing with a series of sermons, essentially about marriage, but at this point in time, we're taking some time um, to think about sexuality. Uh, my basic assumption is this: In making us male and female, God has given us both sex and a desire for sex. Both things are good, both things are precious. The extreme goodness of the gift of sexuality can be seen negatively speaking in how important it is to God that we don't misuse the gift. Today, let's consider the question of sex before marriage. This question is worth thinking about very, very carefully. You see, since the 1960s, it has become increasingly normal, culturally speaking, For couples to have sexual intercourse and indeed often indeed live together before marrying, if indeed they marry at all. One factor undoubtedly in this shift has been the invention of safe and reliable forms of contraception, which has, at least to some extent, meant that unmarried adults can have sex without being too concerned about the social implications of children born outside of wedlock. It it is so universally, uniformly assumed in our culture, in our films and television, that adults have sex before and outside of marriage, that it can be difficult. It can be extremely difficult for many of us to accept that being a Christian involves renouncing sexual intercourse before or outside of marriage. So then, uh, for example, when in Big Bang Theory, when Sheldon finally has sex with his girlfriend Amy, this is uniformly and wildly celebrated by them, by the other characters in the show, and by the studio audience. It's celebrated as a good and wonderful thing. Not only is there no discussion as to whether or not they should wait for marriage, there isn't even the consciousness that some might consider their behavior wrong and immoral. It just isn't in their worldview. Meanwhile, today, 97% of Indonesians believe that sex before marriage is immoral. And if you're a more senior citizen, you can probably remember when 97% of Australians, Americans, and Brits, shared that view. For, for me, coming from a, a non-church background, I first encountered the gospel as a teenager in the mid-80s. I, I was impressed with Jesus. Instinctively, I think, I guess, by the grace of God, instinctively, I knew that he was who he said he was. I knew that he was the son of the Most High God. But I also knew that Christians didn't believe in sex before marriage. So then, as a, as a 15, 16-year-old, I also knew that if I became a Christian, I'd have to live very, very differently to my friends, who, both male and female, were all rather desperate to lose their virginity. And many of them were indeed engaging in sex fairly routinely before leaving high school. This common desperation to jump into the world of adult sexual relations was felt for fairly obvious and natural reasons. It was easy to imagine that sex was going to be wildly pleasurable, in fact, more pleasurable than anything we'd previously encountered. Also, and this is not an insignificant consideration, uh, the virgin, uh, to use that word in its contemporary sense, the virgin often felt uh, awed by his or her more experienced friends. They had entered the world of adulthood in a way that they hadn't, and it was easy to feel diminished, inferior, uh, unattractive, insecure in the face of their friends' apparently superior experience. And importantly, none of my friends understood this to be a moral issue. There wasn't any suggestion either within my friendship group or from our families collectively or from our contemporary culture, there there wasn't any suggestion that the activity was immoral. For me then, as a teenager, it wasn't simply a matter of resisting the temptation of an immoral life, but rather of deciding which moral or ethic had more credibility. If I was to forego sex before marriage, then I needed to be convinced that the church and the Bible really knew what they were talking about. When I did finally commit my life to Christ in my mid-twenties, I realized that actually young people who'd grown up in the church, they were likewise struggling with the same credibility issue. Sure, the tradition of the church is to teach against sex before marriage, But was that tradition to be respected or rejected? Or maybe we give it lip service on Sundays, but do something quite different on Friday nights. I I remember in the context of a scripture union camp, a young man uh, on the camp asking an older Christian in a somewhat energized manner, where does it say in the Bible you can't have sex before marriage? I think he meant the question rhetorically. I think what he was saying uh, was, I challenge you to find it because it ain't there. To, to be sure, the Bible says clearly, thou shalt not commit adultery, which is obviously concerned. The people who have made a vow of faithfulness to each other in the context of holy matrimony do not break faith with each other. But there is no corresponding thou shalt not have sex before marriage. And that young man was right to not just simply accept the tradition in which he'd been raised on face value. Churches and pastors take it upon themselves to declare what is acceptable and what is unacceptable to God when it comes to sexuality. And the plain fact of the matter is that we are really going to really, really damage people if we get that wrong. Either declaring something unacceptable when it's acceptable, or declaring something unacceptable when it is acceptable. So questioning is important. Also, in fairness to that young man, uh, the New Testament often uses the phrase sexual immorality in a vague and undefined way. For example, in Ephesians 5, Paul says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality but the context gives no hint or little information as to how sexual immorality is to be defined. Maybe you define it for yourself. Who knows? Well, hunting around a bit, you can see that actually in Paul's letters, drunken orgies and prostitution, well, they're definitely out. That's definitely included in Paul's definition of sexual immorality. But single Christians, by and large, well, actually, they weren't thinking about doing that anyway. They're wondering if, in a committed, loving, adult, consensual relationship, it's okay to have sex before marriage. Well then, let's track this thing down and do our best to answer this sincere question. And let's start with one conversation where we do get a clear definition of sexual immorality in the New Testament. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapters 5 and 6 in these chapters, Paul responds to reports of somewhat widespread sexual immorality in that church. What did that sexual immorality look like? Well, in in the text that we've heard this morning, it seems that many Corinthian Christians were continuing to do something that they would have taken for granted before they came to faith in Christ. They're visiting one or both of the two local pagan temples, one to Apollo, the other to Octavius, and they're making use of the temple prostitutes. But there is also seems to be a group that within that church, whether they're at a pagan temple or not, they're giving themselves over to licentiousness and promiscuous, promiscuousness. Paul opens his discussion of sexual immorality with these words, chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. It appears that many Christians in Corinth had heard Paul's preaching of the gospel, and they had misunderstood it in a way that we know that lots of people misunderstood it. Paul has indeed been preaching that the Christian is free. The Christian is forgiven. The Christian is no longer bound by the law of Moses. They are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and by faith alone and not by works, not by keeping the traditions of Judaism. The food laws have been nullified. The cultic and sacrificial practices of the temple have now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the Jewish cultural observances have now been made a matter of individual conscience. Christians are not under the law. That, that's why these Corinthian Christians are proud of their behavior, because it's a demonstration of their freedom, free from all accusation and blame, free from law. They were free to have, to quote their own teachers, the free freedom, the right to do anything. Furthermore, the sexual appetite is simply an appetite. One needs to have sex just as one needs to have food. To quote them again, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. A very pragmatic approach to the satisfaction of bodily appetites. Now, Paul could have responded to this situation by simply quoting the law of Moses. Leviticus 18.8 says, Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. And Leviticus 20, verse 11 says, If a man has sexual relations with his father's wife, he has dishonored his father. Both the man and the woman are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. Paul could have quoted Leviticus, but he doesn't. Paul knows that this text does not apply to the Corinthian Christians in an immediate and direct sense, truly They are not under the law. Paul also could have lectured them on the ethical issues at hand, how prostitution is unloving, oppressive, misogynist, unjust, how sexual immorality damages relationships, etc., but he doesn't do that either. His approach is both simple and consistent with all of his teaching elsewhere. He says it clearly... Sexual immorality is to be shunned because it is sin. Although Christians are no longer under the law in the way that Jews were, sin is still sin. And the law shows us what sin is. That's Paul's gospel. It's also Christ's. So then, if we are to understand sin... We must go to the Old Testament in order to see clearly what Paul took for granted from the law. Now, the law of Moses talks about sexual sin in a variety of places, it, but there's a concentration of conversation in Leviticus 18 to 20 and then again in Deuteronomy 21 to 25. Leviticus 18 has a summary statement in verse 6. The summary statement is this No one is to approach any close relative. To have sexual relations, I am the Lord. Now, that might sound all a little bit obvious, but God, in his wisdom, assumes that it is not obvious, and so he lays it down as a rule, as a law. He also assumes that even given this law, the summary, we'll need to have it spelt out for us. And so, after verse 6, the summary comes 12. Specific laws applying and relating this summary statement to specific relationships. Thus, Israelite men read that they're not allowed to have sex with their mothers, nor any, uh, any other wife of their fathers, nor their sisters, nor their grandchildren, nor the children of any of their father's wives, nor with their aunts, nor with their daughters-in-law, etc., etc., etc. After these 11 anti-incest laws come five additional laws prohibiting various other marital or sexual practices common among the ancient Near Eastern people. 17 commands. In 15 out of 17 cases, it seems that the principle at stake is that the banned behavior is banned because it does violence to an earlier text. Another summary statement found in Genesis 2. Twenty-four, And that statement is this. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now, in the first of this series of sermons, we looked at Genesis 2 and we thought about that phrase, one flesh. And if you were here, you may remember we heard about how the phrase one flesh primarily means one family. Marriage creates new families. The phrase has a secondary meaning. They will become one flesh also refers to sexual intercourse, the union of coitus. So then, sexual intercourse will be a physical sign of a legal truth, that the newly married couple are one flesh, that is one new family. The author of Leviticus, who is Moses, clearly sees this summary statement from Genesis 2, 24 as authoritative and defining as a principle. Thus and therefore, with respect to the 17 laws of Leviticus, here are some things to consider or notice next time you're in chapters 18 and 20. Firstly, every law here to do with sexual immorality has to do with sexual intercourse, meaning penile penetration, physical union. If the penis is inserted somewhere, it gets mentioned. If it doesn't involve penile penetration, it doesn't get mentioned. That's a graphic way of putting it, but the observation is relevant and I'll say why in a few minutes. Second, It's also worth noting that chapter 18 puts as bookends to all these laws statements about the fact that these behaviors being prohibited are culturally acceptable elsewhere, but that they have absolutely no place in Israelite society. Four times it is said, yes, sure, this is how everyone behaves in Egypt, where you've come from, and in Canaan, where you are going, but you are not to do these things. Anyone who does will forfeit citizenship with respect to belonging to God's people. And if these things become culturally acceptable in Israel, it will forfeit the land and be driven from God's presence. Third, there is no mention of context Context is not determinative in interpretation in this case. Some of the things prohibitive may have prohibited may have happened at pagan temples. Some may have happened at home. Either way, they may not happen irrespective of context because, fourthly, it is absolutely critical that these things don't happen with respect to Israel. For two chapters later in Leviticus 20, we read that people who do the prescribed things in chapter 18 are to be put to death. Now, the death penalty in the Old Testament is an interesting thing. As far as I'm aware, apart from one particularly gross incident that involved an orgy with the Moabites, there is no historical evidence that anyone in Israel's history was ever put to death for sexual sin. That's interesting. I think that the death penalty in the Law of Moses is to be interpreted fundamentally in the light of theology rather than necessarily as legal code. I'll try to explain what I mean. In the book of Exodus, one man receives the death penalty for collecting sticks on the Sabbath. He is put to death. Good legal practice, as is universally recognized, includes the idea of letting the punishment fit the crime. Being stoned to death for collecting sticks on the Sabbath, does the punishment fit the crime? Well, no, humanly speaking, it doesn't. No one was hurt by that crime. No one lost their lives. The punishment does not fit the crime. Legally, that's a poor judgment, indeed a miscarriage of justice. But theologically, the judgment is perfect. To collect sticks on the Sabbath under the old covenant is to reject God, to reject his law, to reject his salvation, what he has done for you, and to reject his prophet. To reject these things is to choose death. The stoning to death of a man who collected sticks on the Sabbath, simply gave him the real substance of his choice immediately. It brought about his eternal choice immediately. Returning to Leviticus, the instigation of the death penalty for all of the sexual acts described therein tells us unequivocally that these things are seriously and totally unacceptable to God, utterly unacceptable for God's people, and probably because such things, humanly speaking, are damaging to people. They destroy lives. And secondly, such things, spiritually speaking, are damaging. That is to say, they destroy our relationship with God. These things are corrosive with respect to one's relationship with God. It leads to spiritual death, whether or not it happens to be bad for your physical or mental health. And ultimately, that's what sin means. It means something wherein we reject God's rule in favor of our own, and in doing so, we part company with him. This in turn leads to the conclusion that actually, in a way that is not entirely explained, penetrative sex is a spiritual act. It's also worth noting that the book of Deuteronomy contains a number of laws regarding sexual sin, especially in chapters 21 to 25. Again, we find that sex outside of marriage, either before marriage or in violation of marriage, is utterly unacceptable to God and is usually to be answered with the death penalty. And although this prohibition is not explained in context, it is consistent with the view that Genesis 2:24 makes sex Before marriage, anathema. Penetrative sexual intercourse is both a spiritual and legal act as well as a physical and sexual act such that a new family is created before the Lord and before his people. Sex before marriage, so to speak, becomes a logical contradiction in terms, an oxymoron. We are now in a considerably better position with respect to understanding Paul and his words regarding sexual immorality. We now know what he means by that phrase. Firstly, Paul shares with Moses the belief that Genesis 2.24 is normative, authoritative, the guiding and defining view of marriage, so that in defining marriage it also defines sin. Whilst he doesn't quote Leviticus he does quote Genesis 2.24. In verse 16, the two will become one flesh. Penetrative sexual intercourse, therefore, continues to make two people one flesh, legally, physically, and spiritually. Again, as in the Old Testament, how sex is a spiritual act is not explained. Paul simply states, to be a Christian is to be united to Jesus spiritually, spiritually. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You can't be one with Christ spiritually if you're one with a prostitute physically, to paraphrase verses 17 to 20. Secondly, we see that Paul shares with Moses the belief that sexual sin puts people in jeopardy. Paul's phrase is, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He uses this phrase twice in 1 Corinthians, once in Galatians, and once in Ephesians. Once again, we see that Paul shares with the author of Leviticus the notion that unacceptable, penetrative sexual intercourse is death, spiritually speaking. He is not saying that from now on, God is hiding around the corner, just waiting for the right moment to zap you with a bolt of lightning. He's not saying that God will reject them. No, no, no. He's saying something much worse. He's saying that people who do these things will slowly but surely move to a place where they no longer ask Jesus to forgive them. And from there, they'll move to a place where they no longer ask Jesus for anything at all. They'll choose for themselves to move out of Graceland's. They'll move out of the community of those who are saved by grace because actually they no longer see the need for grace and into the community of those who are self-excluded from the inheritance that is to come. Thirdly, Paul shares with Moses the idea that a radical response is required because it is critical that the people of God do not do these things, even if perhaps especially if the people all around us do. Paul writes uh, in chapter 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy, the swindlers, the idolaters. In that case, it has to leave this world altogether. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer a drunkard, or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Now, pastorally, I'll be the first to admit, it is not easy to know how to apply this word. However, plainly, Paul shares with the author of Leviticus the idea that it is critical that the people of God do not do these things, even if, perhaps especially if, the people all around us do. Therefore, And to answer the question now unequivocally, it is not difficult to see from the Bible that sex before marriage is utterly unacceptable to God, just as sex outside of marriage is utterly unacceptable to God, and that this is the united position of both Testaments, the same view under both covenants. Sexual intercourse is a legal, physical, emotional, and spiritual act that creates In all of those dimensions, a new family. To turn that around, we can say sexual intercourse is great for married folk, terrible for courting folk. Great for marriage, bad for courtship. And if you'd like to think more about uh, biblical courtship, I invite you to listen to my sermon of three weeks ago, uh, September 30. Now that we have outlined the biblical position, we can ask a further question Is this a credible position? Does the world, which has given us such a, a, an impressive scientific understanding of sex, much a much greater understanding of sex than the ancients ever had, does the world, together with effective methods of contraception and effective ways of preventing sexually transmitted diseases, does the world have a superior wisdom to offer us? And I think that it does not. Uh, Here are some things to say in defense of the biblical wisdom. Uh, Amongst my peers, uh, school and neighborhood friends and acquaintances, they were well-educated and armed with all the information, the best the world could offer. Yet and nevertheless, sexually transmitted disease was exceedingly commonplace and caused enormous distress. There was also... Occasional teenage pregnancy and abortion. Then, of course, there were the broken promises and the broken hearts and, again, the enormous distress caused by such things. People who didn't consider themselves to be promiscuous nevertheless accumulated a long list of ex-sexual partners as relationship after relationship failed. Sex before marriage did not serve my generation well. It betrayed us, as all idols do. And historically, it's been well-documented for centuries. Sexually promiscuous societies fall apart, and they fall apart rapidly. It's not difficult to see why. If a society does courtship badly, it does relationships badly. It does marriage badly. It does family badly. It does divorce and remarriage badly. Badly, it does the care and nurture of children badly, etc., etc., etc. Hollywood exemplifies this death spiral perfectly and sadly. In contrast, married people learn that married sex is a demanding discipline. Paul talks about that a little bit in 1 Corinthians 7. It is something that strengthens a relationship, but also puts great strain on a relationship. In marriage, it is very good to know, at least sometimes, that your continuing acceptance by your spouse is not performance-based. Sex is for marriage for very good reasons. How do we practically apply what we've learnt this morning? First, uh, younger Christians and single Christians, please note this. If you have sex with someone that you are in love with, you are endangering that relationship, not helping it. Worse, you are also endangering your relationship with God. Don't do it. If you have done it, ask God's forgiveness who freely forgives all who put their trust in his son and renounce sex before marriage. Second, married Christians. If you had sex before you were married, you must renounce that too, formally, acknowledging before the Lord in prayer that it was the wrong thing to do and asking for his forgiveness. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. A third area of practical response is to consider how we as a community respond to unmarried couples who are living together as though they were married. Now, whilst unmarried Christians who are living promiscuously, they, they must be responded to with correction and discipline But correction and discipline might not be appropriate with respect to a couple who are committed to each other, love each other, are living with each other, yet not married. This is simply because we need to acknowledge that many young couples today will not understand what they are doing as morally wrong. And people do not respond well to being told off when they do not think they're doing something wrong. It just doesn't work. No, rather, in that case, we recognize their relationship and we encourage them in it. But as part of that encouragement, we encourage them to commit to each other fully in marriage before both God and state as soon as is practically possible. This is the take-home message. Sex is a great thing to do in marriage, a lousy thing to do in courtship. And the Lord be with you all.